I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Today, as every week, at least since the middle of November, you have Mark Hamilton and you have Mr. Mark Daly, the longtime host, creator, and I've also heard the term overlord in reference to your, <laughs> your functional and practical role with this show. But it's the it's the middle of January. We're creeping towards the beginning of a season. You know, we saw a, a, an amazing and peaceful uh, transition of power in the United States this week, which always feels good to see, regardless of which political side you're on. Yeah. But you know what? I feel like I feel like we're slowly creeping closer and closer to the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we're seeing vaccinations successfully deployed globally. You're hearing great news stories stories out of certain countries where they're starting to really tackle the situation and vaccinate the bigger portion of the population. But I'm excited. And, and, you know, I think we have reason to be. We know when we talked about this last week that the Australian Grand Prix, which was teed up to be the season opener, has been pushed off until the fall. That's fine. It makes sense. But still, we have Bahrain and it's only at this point, maybe eight weeks away, 60 days. And between then and now, we also get to see all of the introductions to the 2021 challengers. And some of these teams have already started posting teasers. They've started posting their dates. There's lots to be excited about. My friend, how are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm still stinging a little bit from that overlord uh, comment. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 am I, are you hinting I'm a little bit overbearing? I mean, I, I try to be as... Uh, well, anyways, let, let's move past that. But yes, there is a lot to look forward to. You know, and I specifically love this uh, time of year when, when you just uh, pick up your phone, you start scrolling through the news, and you see the announcement, Ferrari's going to launch their car on this date, Mercedes on this date, and Red Bull on this date. And then, like you say, you get these like little teasers, you know, like the, like, like a hint of a paint scheme or maybe a piece of bodywork or something like that and then you see things like you know like Carlos Sainz his first test the first time he's going to get in the Ferrari is going to be on such and such a day you know all these stories you know it uh, it, it gets uh, pretty exciting uh, you know that when you start to, to build up like this despite the fact that the season is going to be delayed for a couple of weeks what the rescheduling and juggling around of, uh, of, uh, of Melbourne but hey that's just the world that we're living in in the moment and like like you were saying just now, yeah, there's still a lot of bad news out there, but there are some rays of sunshine poking through all the doom and gloom. And I think slowly but surely that uh, th- that things will start to get better. And like you say, the inauguration of Joe Biden the other day, and regardless of your political uh, leanings, whatever your beliefs are, Democrat, Republican, I just hope that uh, together that the country can move forward and um, just in a new sense of cooperation and and hopefully a lot of these, you know, bad feelings have been put behind us. I mean, there certainly is a lot more we can achieve together and uh, hopefully, um, you know, 2021 
turns out to be much better than 2020. Because I had one, you know, our, our good friend Victor Sum, you know, he's, I saw him tweet on, uh, you know, I think it was just after New Year's. He's like, guys, don't be too excited about 2021. <laughs> because if you look at it, you break it down, it's 2020 W-O-N. And I'm like, ooh, that's a little bit too heavy, my friend. Yeah, but, shout out to our boy uh, Victor, a, a huge local football fan and Whitecaps supporter. Somebody I think that both of us have known for quite a while. Yep. There is a little bit of bad news. And, you know, I've refrained so hard from bringing this up over the last couple of months with you. But as everybody knows, I'm a gigantic OVO fan, a gigantic Drake fan. His album, which was expected to be dropped in January, has been delayed. I am emotionally devastated. So (laughs) if I'm a little bit off today, that's why. It's not because Mark did anything or gave me some feedback about my performance. It's just (laughs) I was expecting that to kind of break up the winter blues and it's not going to happen. So that, that aside, I think we could probably jump right into it, right? Yeah, well, where where do we want to start? I mean, uh, again, this is it's been a bit of a strange off season so far. I mean, we we finished the year twenty twenty as uh, later than usual, what with the, the the season finale in Abu Dhabi, but there seems to be an unusual amount of news kind of you know really percolating up. Well, it's not even percolating; it's just out there, like each and every day. There's something quite newsworthy, especially in a time of year that is usually pretty flat and pretty devoid of news, because um, you know most of the drivers they're they're just coming back from their break. They're starting to condition, you know, back at the factories. They're getting ready, and you know they're they're rushing to get the cars ready for the season, getting ready to go to to, to Barcelona for you know as traditionally we've done for many years for winter testing and all the car launches and all that. But there there is a lot of other stories just out there, and it uh, it it makes it interesting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it certainly gives us a plenty to talk about on this uh, this show but it is uh, it's it's really really good the one story that immediately caught my new, my my eye off the uh, the, the the top here was uh, Stefano Domenicali uh, saying that um, he heard from uh, Lewis Hamilton that uh, that that Lewis is undecided at the moment uh, whether or not uh, he's going to sign a new deal with uh, Mercedes um uh, Domenicali uh, told uh, Sky Sports 24 that he spoke to Lewis over the Christmas break he said that uh, he's preparing for the new season, but he remained very non-committal on uh, whether or not uh, he's going to sign a new deal with uh, with the Silver Arrows. But you know, I, I think as as uh, you know, as eye popping and attention grabbing as that headline is. I really expect that this deal is going to get done. I, I just, at this point, I think there's still too much uh, for, for Lewis to play for. I think that he wants to, to set the records. I think he still wants to, you know, seal his legacy as the GOAT outright. I mean, uh, you know, he, I mean, he sees right up there with Schumacher in terms of, uh, championships and all the records he holds. So I don't know. I, I think that, uh, maybe this is a, a little more clickbaity than, than, than anything, but it'd be interesting, uh, to, to hear your thoughts on that one, Mark. You know, it's, it's funny. I think my reaction reaction to the story and I, I saw it come across my feed as well earlier today is it's it's less about the substance of the conversation but more about who's answering the question like I I, I was a little bit thrown that F1 boss Stefano Domenicali is commenting on an out of contract racer with the sports preeminent squad. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't, it felt very Bernie to me. Like Bernie always had an opinion. And if you're a reporter and you had access to Bernie, he was a great person to go to, to get a quote. But I yeah. find it interesting that, that he's weighing in on this subject. And, and yes. if I'm Lewis's camp and if I'm the Mercedes team, do I need him creating a distraction and commenting on kind of an internal contractual matter? I thought that was kind of interesting. And I agree. Like if, we, if we're going to comment purely on 
the the contract matter at hand. I think it's going to happen. Um, I don't think it was particularly helpful that George Russell had that opportunity to drive Lewis's car in Bahrain. Whether that ultimately means that Lewis is going to sign for less money or not, I don't know. But I think ultimately he could potentially have lost leverage in that negotiation. But ultimately, I'm supremely confident he's going to be back. And, and I've seen the stories and I've seen the speculation online that he would be happy to hang it up. I don't believe for a second that somebody that's worked as long and as hard as he did would be willing to compromise the opportunity to leave the sport with the greatest number of WDCs that anyone's ever achieved. Like I, I think he's all in, but I think he has certain expectations around what this contract's going to look like. And I think he wants to be able to dictate term and value. Um, and I think ultimately that's what's going to happen. And it's it's also widely speculated as well that the contract's done and Mercedes just isn't ready to announce it. But to your point, it's going to happen, whether it's now or next week or next month. It would be possibly the greatest shock in Formula One history if the reigning world champion didn't return to this team because he wouldn't have an alternative seat in the sport. Yeah, it, it just uh, logically it makes uh, no sense. And uh, to your point that uh, that the deal's been done and uh, Mercedes isn't, uh, you know, they, they just haven't announced it yet. That would be, I, I think we've seen signs of that because, I mean, uh, Valtteri Bottas mentioned it last year when, uh, you know, he'd said that uh, a contract was all but done for another you know, I guess, uh, you know, we, we all speculated right, at the time right. it'd be another one-year deal. And it took a, a couple of weeks uh, before that one was announced. But again, it would make no sense for him not to sign this contract because right now, Lewis has to be at his peak value. Seven-time world champion. He's still dominant in the in the sport. I mean, as impressive as George Russell was in that uh, that, that one-off at uh, Bahrain 2 for the Sakir Grand Prix, that it was only a weekend. And of course, you know, I, I, if... There's any driver that's under threat in that team. It would more likely be uh, Bottas than the than Hamilton himself, and I just can't see him walking away. And I, I just can't see him, you know, giving them the hometown discount at, at this point. When I think his value, what what he could ask and command as a salary and term and value of the contract, just as exactly as you said, I think it's 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 absolute peak right now. And I think that uh, it, it's just it, it'll be announced at some point. I mean, it would be nothing short of completely earth shattering uh, for for Lewis not to sign this deal at this point. I, I just can't see any reason for it not to happen. I say we make a pact that we don't address the Lewis contract situation again until he's either signed or publicly acknowledged that he's not going to sign. And I think I, I would just, I would, as a final nail in this coffin of the Lewis Hamilton contract discussion, I would just say that even if you knew that George Russell could come in, replace Hamilton this season and win the driver's title, he is less valuable to Mercedes from a marketing perspective. He is less valuable when you go to your sponsors and try to extract as much value from them as you can. Mm -hmm. Lewis has immense value that George Russell does not have now. So all things being equal, even if you knew he could win the title, he's not as valuable to that team. Not yet. I mean, uh, Russell's still a young guy, still very much uh, trying to establish himself in, in the sport. I mean, he's got to uh, you know serve his time as a number two uh, in, in in a big team. I mean, you know, he he might have some uh, legitimate uh, reason to to say he's got the number one seat at a team like Williams. But I mean, if he was to move to one of the uh, you know the big dogs in the sport, he would definitely have to serve uh, you know some time there in an apprenticeship. Uh, you know, to a driver like Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen or whoever 
depending where he had ended up. I mean, obviously, he's hoping for one of the silver cars, but uh, that uh, remains to, to, to be seen. Anyway, sticking with Stefano Domenicali, he said that uh, that he and Formula One are taking what he calls a flexible approach to the 2021 calendar. We talked about it just a, a little bit earlier about the, uh, you know, the, the shift and the fact that uh, Australia is going to be postponed till the end of the season. You know, I, I think it works just from the, 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 the point of view that they're going from, you know, basically different ends of the, the, the spectrum when it comes to the seasons in the Southern Hemisphere. So, so the dates uh, work. Um, Chinese Grand Prix is currently off the can, uh, calendar. So, you know, I, I think it makes sense that they have to be uh, flexible like that. And I think that, uh, you know, Domenicali, I think he's just, uh, you know, I, I think he's just being realistic. And, you know, for, for lack of a better uh, term, I mean, he, he's keeping it real. I think they just, uh, you know, they're, they're being very, very, I would not only just say ambitious, but pretty aggressive to try and get a 23 race season in the midst of uh, an ongoing pandemic. And uh, very much, uh, I think that there will still be some changes along the way. Hopefully not to, too many because uh, it would be great to, to get all those races in. 17, like I said, the week or so ago, felt uh, like a, a really hefty season, considering we'd get start to start until July last year. But uh, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to start like right now if we could, but it's not up to me. This is one of those things that I want to see him commenting on. And yes. I also respect the fact that he's willing to compromise early. And surely from from Liberty's perspective, that they accounted for these kind of adjustments when they were building that calendar. It's nice to see that they've been so, and, and fortunately, they haven't really had to be reactive. They they built some flexibility into the calendar. I'm not particularly sad to see China off the calendar for 2021. I'm, I'm significantly more excited to see Imola and Portugal once again. So I, I think they're going to be good. And, you know, again, we talked about this before. If you look at the first half of the schedule, they built it in such a way that with the exception maybe of Monaco, Azerbaijan, and Canada, these are really tracks that can host races that aren't dependent on access to a metro core. So I, I think the calendar was constructed in such a way that there's some flexibility that they can adjust on the fly if they need to. And and again, like you said, I, I'm super excited to see what this calendar holds. And just like last year, we're going to be racing up till really a week before, two weeks before Christmas, which mm-hmm. is uh, which is just crazy. It is. But, uh, you know, I've really come to embrace these, uh, the, these super long uh, seasons, you know, that uh, as the calendar's slowly grown over the years, I mean, when you kind of go back and you look at the, uh, the w- what the world championship was like in the 1950s, where it was like eight races or six races a year, whatever it was. Right, right. I'm thinking, it, you know, if, if I traveled back in time, I, I, I could not handle that. You know, the, the six race, I mean, obviously the world in 1950 from a you know, logistics and sporting point of view was was very different. But still, uh, I, I just, uh, and, and, the, and the, the fact that there just wasn't TV or internet, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to cope. But, you know, you transplant me from 2021 to 1950, completely uh, different world. I'll, you know, do it the other way around, might blow some minds as well. But, you know, the one thing that I find very interesting, and I mean, we, we've been speculating it about, uh, about how the season might change quite a bit over the past uh, couple of weeks. But the organizers uh, for the Monaco Grand Prix are pretty insistent that their Formula One formula and the historic Grand Prix events are still going to go ahead 100% as planned, despite the ongoing issues and concerns and everything going on around the ongoing uh, pandemic situation. So they, um, you know, the the, uh, Automobile Club de Monaco responded to uh, news and rumors and ongoing speculation out there that uh, perhaps the whole thing that's scheduled for the weekend of May 23rd would be blown off uh, like it was last year. I mean, we basically lost, um, you know, pretty 
much a third of the season right off the bat there before they start rescheduling and uh, and, and putting everything uh, together. So, I mean, obviously, like we said, Azerbaijan, that's in question. Canada's in question. So I just, uh, the, the one thing I find interesting about it is uh, one of these uh, races that's actually in an urban setting, as urban as uh, as, uh, as Monte Carlo is, um, I, I find it interesting that uh, in, in an area where there are basically a residential area that uh, that this one is still going on, according to the uh, organizers, as of this date and time right now. So certainly one to keep your eye on uh, moving ahead. I don't have a lot to add to that other than I, I'm shocked um, a, a little bit. And hmm. Things can obviously change, but they haven't officially started selling tickets yet for this race, which I thought was a little bit interesting. I, I did a little bit of research too, because I wanted to understand how long the build takes to get the track ready in Monaco. And it's six weeks. So okay. really they, they have another, another month, maybe two months in which case they can make the decision of whether they need to uh, abandon the race or not. But I also appreciate that this event is very much the jewel by which the entire city markets itself. And, and I can appreciate how important it is. And again, that the local population is relatively small and maybe governments and health authorities feel that, hey, you know what, maybe what we can do for this event is continue to restrict international travel travel, and we'll make tickets available to locals. And, you know, we'll have certain standards around vaccination rates and things like that. So they, they're there could be all kinds of things happening with the local health authorities that make them feel comfortable doing this. I, I still suspect Baku will probably happen as well. Again, that's that's a country that it's not it's not a particularly strong liberal democracy. And I think ultimately in Baku, if the government wants the race to go ahead, the race is going to go ahead. And I think Canada is a, a little bit different. And I think that yeah. race is still very much at risk. But yeah, it's, it was interesting to see the Monaco race organizers feel that they needed to come out and address those concerns. So we'll see, we'll see, but they still have some time before they have to start lifting some concrete barriers and catch fencing into place. Yeah, well, you know, the the interesting thing about Baku as well is, uh, you know, the, the just the whole government, uh, you know, situation and, uh, you know, perhaps uh, methods and tactics uh, aside, is the fact that even though it's it's a fairly long and, and a fairly big circuit, I don't believe that the the actual uh, amount of spectators that they put around the circuit is all that much. I, I think it's, what, maybe 10, 15,000 at the absolute max. So, I mean, it wouldn't be a huge loss in terms of having people showing up at the gates. Uh, I mean, they, they could probably run this one behind closed doors, 100%. if you want to call it that, uh, if they decided we, we want this to go ahead, but, you know, we're, we're not going to have any spectators coming in, say, from, from you know, outside of Azerbaijan and uh, just keep it to, to, to locals. Because, I mean, most of the people that are going to watch it, I mean, they can just, if they live downtown, they can just look out their windows anyway. So those are definitely going to be ones to watch. Montreal is a, a completely different ones so i still think there there's going to be some uh fluidity and changes to this first uh first uh, front portion of the schedule uh anyways but some good uh, covid news now lando norris the mclaren driver he's uh headed back to england after his quarantine uh, period in abu dhabi uh he went well he, he quarantined in his hotel after returning a positive test about two weeks ago he uh reported was a loss of smell and taste and some minor symptoms uh he reported uh, feeling a, a little bit uh, under the weather now so now he 
has to, uh, you know, test a negative again before he can fly home to the UK. Then he's going to quarantine or not quarantine, but isolate uh, close to the factory and, uh, and Woking. And apparently he's only going to head into, I still love it. Uh, you know, when, when they say formula one, when they call it work, you know, I'm using the inverted commas here, you know, for those of you watching on YouTube uh, or listening on the podcast, you're not going to be able to see that anyways. Uh, you know, but uh, I guess it is a job, but I can, for, for me and you, it's a, we probably do it for free given the opportunity, but uh, good to hear that, uh, that Lando's uh, feeling better. He's uh, he, he's uh, produced at least one negative test and uh, glad to hear that uh, he'll be heading home uh, very soon. Now th- this one, I, I felt a little bit uh, kind of mixed in this one. And th- this is a uh, Checo Perez saying that he felt he was the stupidest guy on earth last year when uh, he was the first guy or the first driver in the Formula One paddock to actually catch COVID and he missed a, a couple of races uh, because, uh, because of that, the, uh, the, the British Grand Prix at the 70th anniversary Grand Prix at, uh, at Silverstone. And, um, well, you know, I don't know... Uh, I know there was a bit of criticism because he went back to Mexico to uh, to 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 miss or, you know, to to visit with his mother, and uh, you know I mean it's a it's a tough thing. I mean uh, you know I, I guess for him he, he sees it a little bit uh, differently, but I I didn't actually feel you know. I don't want to say aggrieved or whatever it is uh, with, with uh, Sergio Perez, because I don't feel like this is something you can really, I mean, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it just considering how contagious it was. So I thought he was being a little bit harsh on himself. I remember in the summer, there was a story that was printed uh, on ESPN.com that talked about Sergio's reaction to the reaction to him having caught COVID. And, and I think at the time, maybe it was because he was the first driver and maybe it was because there was this whole perception that the drivers would be isolated in a bubble. And I don't think a lot of people knew that he'd left the biosphere that was the Formula One circuit and flew to Mexico. And if you, if you do remember at that time, Mexico was going through an unprecedented surge. Yes. The, the virus was very much out of control. And I think the story broke that he had COVID before it broke that he'd gone to Mexico. So people had to kind of reverse engineer the story. And I think when they found out what had happened, that why would you go to Mexico now? Like we, the, the globe knows it's a very problematic place in terms of infection rate and all those kind of things that there was a lot of criticism of him. Um, and I think it snowballed a bit. And, and I remember in the summer and he was quoted in that ESPN story speaking to how angry he was. Um, but that said, I, I don't doubt that he probably was a little bit embarrassed about the circumstance as well. And you're right. You know what? He could have stayed in the Formula One biosphere and still caught COVID. But I think he was right maybe to feel a little bit embarrassed. Maybe not right to feel it, but I can appreciate why he would have. But I thought it was an interesting kind of reflection from him. And you're right. At the time as well, it was it was that it happened and it was that he missed multiple races because you were going into a double header at Silverstone. Um, and then it was also that racing point themselves were playing a little bit fast and loose with their interpretations of British health guidelines in terms of getting him back into the paddock, which created a little bit of controversy. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting story. I thought it was a nice reflection and I liked the humility from him. Felt a little bit bad afterwards because yeah, you know what? Being the first driver and one of the first people in the paddock that actually caught COVID, you know what? I can kind of sympathize with him, but yeah, I thought it was an interesting story. Absolutely. Anyways, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. And on the other side, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Sergio Perez, but this time in the Red Bull uh, context. So you want to stick around for that. So don't go away. We'll be back after this very short message from our sponsors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive 
eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Mark and Mark, Daly and Hamilton breaking down the latest Formula One news. And before the break, Mark, we were talking about uh, Sergio Perez uh, feeling you know, pretty uh, remorseful about the fact that he caught uh, COVID-19 uh, last summer. But anyway, so let's. I think we can draw a line now underneath the um, Sergio Perez racing point uh, story and start talking about uh, him in the context of uh, Red Bull. And uh, this is interesting. Uh, He says that he's already uh, ready. Well, he's he's obviously already working with with the team, and he thinks that he can really help uh, the the team make a step forward uh, this year. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, of that because I thought that he was always had a lot of input. I think he had a lot of say in what he did at, uh, at at Racing Point, and I think from that point of view i think he's a very immersed uh, driver and i think that he's somebody that that really enjoys uh, or really gets uh likes being a part of the process to, to help and develop a car and all the great drivers and all good drivers really, really do that. And the, the one thing I think too, that is really interesting about uh, Sergio Perez is he's going to bring a completely fresh perspective to, to Red Bull. I mean, he's, he's a guy with experience. He's a guy that's coming in completely outside of that, uh, that, that Red Bull funnel, you know, from their, you know, th- through their own drivers. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, you know, completely unique in the fact that uh, they're, they're bringing a guy in to the the system like uh, Sergio Perez and I'm really interested to see what effect Sergio Perez is going to have and how he's going to influence this team this year and potentially beyond. One of the things that I don't think we probably talk enough about kind of in F1 media circles is the value that a driver provides, not so much in terms of driving the car, but the feedback that he provides to the engineers and in turn the mechanics about the setup of the car. And and I think Perez's experience is such that he's historically been able to provide very good feedback to his engineers, which have enabled them to get every ounce of performance out of the cars that he's been driving. And I think perhaps one of the underreported stories about Alexander Albon's experience with Red Bull is he was a young driver, which means that he he literally didn't have a lot of experience in an F1 car with F1 grip, with F1 tires on F1 tracks. But he also wasn't in a position where he could effectively articulate feedback about 
the dynamics of the racing experience to his engineers in such a way that they could modify the car to make it better for him. I think the great thing about Sergio is he's going to be able to step into that car and immediately provide really tangible setup feedback to the engineers so that they can quickly and seamlessly adapt that vehicle to him. And and I know one of the stories that you're referring to speaks also to the fact that the real benefit here is they're going to start preseason testing, winter testing in Bahrain, and then they're immediately going to go into racing there. So he's got this really good chunk of time where he can get familiar with the car, work on the setup with the engineers, and then get a race weekend. Like everything's kind of set up appropriately here. But I think the real value, especially for somebody like Sergio, is the value he can provide to the team in terms of feedback about the car. And no, no, no shot or criticism of Alexander Albon. He just didn't have the experience that he was effectively able to articulate his experiences in the cockpit to the engineers in the way that somebody like Sergio Perez will be able to. Yeah, and it, it's interesting too, Red Bull. I mean, they, I think they finished the season on a fairly strong note and the fact that the cars are really not going to be well, I mean, there are going to be developments to it, but it's not going to be like a fresh slate like we're, we're usually going to see because we're kind of in this weird transition year between 2020 and the new cars that are coming out to, in, in 2022. So the, the the one thing that I'm wondering is whether or not this is going to have any effect on the, the the bit of the slow start that we sometimes see from, from Red Bull. And that's why I thought it was so interesting last year because, uh, you know, lockdown and factory shutdowns and everything uh, apart – Christian Horner said at one point that this was the, the the most prepared that they'd been for a season since something like 2013 or 2012 or something like that. So basically, the the first time that they were ready to to challenge in you know right from the get go in more than half a decade. So I was really quite um, buoyant and and really expecting a lot more. And 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 that's the thing is that Mercedes being the team that they are is that they're not going to slip up too many times in the season. You know that there's not going to be too many DNFs. Those are far and few between, like we saw in Austria a couple of years ago, or, you know, in 2016 when Rosberg and Hamilton crashed on the opening lap and, you know, various other times. I mean, those were completely different things. But the thing is that if you let them get away too quickly, that even if you start building up ahead of steam later on in the season, it's 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 too much of a gap. I mean, it's just it's 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 virtually impossible to catch these guys. So they need to come out strong. They need to be going at it right from the beginning. And they they got a great uh, pairing of drivers now in Max Verstappen. You got the experienced journeyman and Sergio Perez that's going to bring a lot of um, other things to the team. You know you've got a good car. You know you've got a pretty good engine now. If 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 any year. If at any time recently that they're going to be able to mount a challenge, you would think, at least on paper, 2021 is, uh, you know, you have to think they've got a legit shot at it. Yeah. And the the reality too, is that the team they're going to be chasing is going to be Mercedes and Mercedes is historically a dominant team at the beginning of every season. Remember yep. Nico Rosberg ran off four straight wins to re- start the season in 2016. And, and obviously we all recall the, the epic start to the season that we saw with Mercedes in 2019. Um, if they want to be competitive, I think they need to put Mercedes in a position that they've not been in since 2013, which is they need to be on the back foot and yeah. they need to be on the back foot. And the only way that can happen is if Red Bull has a really strong start. And if Red Bull doesn't have a strong start, like you said, it's it's too late because they're not going to be able to make up that ground. But if they have a strong start and they 
able to put some points on the board, then you know what? Anything possibly is is possible. But I think you make a great point that ultimately, if they want to be competitive this season and they want to potentially chase a constructors title, the only way that happens is that they start winning races right from the start of the season. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. And I, I think Ferrari is the the, the perfect comparison to make because they had a legit shot at both World Championships in twenty eighteen. That last third of the season, by the you know after the the Italian Grand Prix in Singapore, it it, it pretty much went up in a puff of smoke uh, thereafter. But I mean, two thirds of the way through the season, definitely up until after the summer break, they were looking pretty good. Vettel in the drivers' uh, championship, they were looking good in the uh, constructors' championship, but they started to slip up and. You know that th- that was the thing is they had their issues. Mercedes kept doing what they always do. They opened up a gap. Lewis opened up a, a gap in the championship, and at that point, it was uh, just uh, too late. So apparently, now just to sticking with the, with Red Bull, apparently they <laughs> have a deal in place with Honda to take over the intellectual property for the for their engine program, and a decision is going to be coming down from the FIA within the next couple or several days, possibly, hopefully within the next uh, week regarding the engine freeze uh, decision. And honestly, Mark, I think that uh, from from a regulator point of view, from the sports point of view as uh, as, as a whole, I think that you need to make this uh, the, the, this happen. And I think it's kind of interesting too that, uh, that, that some, I don't want to say protest, but some of the things, some of the words that were being, um, you know, sort of voiced in opposition to the, the the whole engine freeze thing that were coming from Ferrari. I mean, guys, really? You and I mean this this whole secret deal that they had with the FAA just over a year ago with their power unit, it, it still bugs me. It still gets under my skin because they were obviously up to, to something for so for them to kind of stick in there and and regardless if it's a, a rival or not, I, I think that uh, they have to find a way, not Ferrari, but the FAA and Formula One have to find a way to make this thing uh, make this thing happen. Otherwise, Red Bull are in a pretty, pretty tough spot. I mean, they're not going to get Mercedes engines. Renault, maybe. Ferrari, probably not. I mean, wh- where else are they going to get uh, you know, their, their, their power units from? So I think from my point of view, it needs to happen. 100% it has to happen. And and there's there's a lot of reasons beyond what's on the paper in front of us in terms of reporting on this story. I, I think that the bigger concern for the FIA in Liberty is there's no guarantee that Mercedes will continue to produce power units well into the future. There's no guarantee that Renault will continue to produce power units well into the future. You can't afford to lose another engine supplier. And if there's an opportunity for Red Bull to become an engine producer and potentially an engine supplier to feed teams in the future, you need to do whatever it takes to nurture that development. And to your point as well, if you spoke to any one of these teams, and, and I strongly believe Mercedes included, that an engine freeze, given the financial uncertainty of the sport, given what we've experienced the last 12 months in terms of the COVID piece and in terms of introducing financial stability to the sport, like an engine freeze makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, allowing, allowing, I guess not even allowing, but enabling Red Bull to be in a position where they can make that investment in a Honda IP so they can become an engine producer and potentially an engine supplier. These are all good things for the sport. The one thing I'm really curious about is I'm dying to understand, and Marco speaks to the fact that the deal with Honda is all but done. It's really just pending whether the sport's going to look at um, kind of implementing this, this engine freeze, but 
I'm dying to understand the financial aspects of that deal, right? Like, I don't think when Honda backed out of the sport, they did so thinking that, hey, we can spin off our um, engine IP and make money off it. Like, I, I, I can't help but wonder if they basically gifted it to Red Bull as a parting gift. So I'm dying to see what the terms of the deal were when they are finally disclosed, if they're ever disclosed. But I'm super, super curious to understand what that looked like because ultimately the engine IP is worthless. You can't sell it off to anyone else. There's no one on the market looking for F1 IP. Uh, And even if there was, it would take years and hundreds of millions of dollars to build a car that kind of accommodates that engine. So I'm really, really curious to see. But I'm also excited to see Red Bull in a sense, become something of a works manufacturer for yep. the first time, right? Ever since their inception, you know, they, they've obviously had the Renault partnership and their sister team, Toro Rosso, was temporarily partnered with Ferrari. But I'm really curious to see what this team can do when they're fully integrated. And they had a great relationship with Honda, as short-lived as it was. They had a terrible relationship with Renault, and they made that work from a, a championship perspective. But I'm super pumped to see what they can do as really an integrated works team. Yeah, you know, and it's you you make some great points there and I think, you know, if if you're Red Bull, uh even though it uh, you know, it's obviously not an ideal situation to be in when your 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 engine supplier comes in and kind of pulls the carpet out from from underneath you, but in terms of wanting to take that operation over, now is almost the ideal time as long as you can come to to, to financial agreement uh, with them because this is not the, the the Honda power unit of 2015. I mean, th- this thing has a lot of miles on it. It's got a lot of development in it, and, and we've seen the 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 improvement. We we know that uh, that they're going to design a good chassis around it. So I mean, I think that the foundations of something very potentially very successful is is, is there. It's very tantalizing. And I just see from from the broader perspective uh, of Formula One, I just see too many pluses to you know to, for this thing happening. Rather to say uh, you know the, the engine freeze bad idea, like you said. I mean you know to to bring the, the the cost down, which is something they've been trying to do anyways, especially inside this COVID environment so where where revenues are down everywhere. That it just it makes too much sense. And and much like you, I would love to see what these guys could do as an outright you know. Works manufacturer in, in, in their own right, and it'd be kind of interesting too. I was thinking about it uh, th- this afternoon. It's just you know, Red Bull are always on point when it comes to savvy marketing and, and things like that. I just wondered what they would uh, you know if they have their own engine. Would it would they brand it as a Red Bull or would it be something so, something else? You know, would they, would they go back to like the uh, the Tag Heuer branded uh, Renault engines or would they you know? I'm sure they could come up with uh, something pretty slick if uh, they, they they wanted to. Uh, and the one thing I'll add as well, because I think some of the listeners might be wondering, like, why why is this Honda IP deal contingent on a, a kind of an engine freeze? That the reality is this is Red Bull's going to spend, or maybe not spend, but they're going to invest in the Honda IP, and they're going to take on the risk of continuing the development of that engine. If Formula One was to flip the script and introduce a new engine formula, that existing Honda IP is worthless because it's based on the current 1.6 liter turbo hybrid spec. And if the sport was to change the engine formula, that becomes worthless. So the reason why Red Bull is so invested in this engine freeze is 
As long as there's an engine freeze, there's value in buying that IP and integrating it into their workflow and continuing to invest in it. But if the sport is ultimately leaning towards a new engine formula, whether it's a simplified V8 or it's further electrification, that Honda IP is worthless, completely yeah. worthless. And it would be cheaper and more efficient to buy a power unit from a different manufacturer. So that's kind of why they're so they're so invested in this engine freeze. But I am too, because it just pr- introduces cost certainty to the sport at a time when it desperately needs it. Yeah, you know, you you stole the words right out of my, my mouth in the, the 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 latter part of your uh, your reply to me there. So I have nothing to add to that. I mean, <laughs> other than the fact that right now that uh, like you say, I mean, it would make make no sense to like completely change the formula and design of these engines when they're looking to new engine regs in 2026. Sure, that's five years down the road, but considering that uh, you know we're going to be in a global economic slump or crunch or whatever it is. For uh, you know, probably quite a while after you know COVID, uh, you know post COVID, right? So it just does not make sense, especially over the past decade that hundreds of millions or billions of dollars collectively have been spent to develop these engines. I personally think it's time to cool it. I think it works. I think that they're fantastic uh, pieces of technology. I mean, if they can tweak the designs here or there, you know, maybe experiment the biofuels or whatever. Sure, I guess there's some room to play around with it, but I don't. Think that they should uh, flip it upside down. I think the I think the the, the freeze is the perfect way to go at this uh, point in time. Anyways, uh, Mark, let's take a, another quick uh, break here on the show, and when we come back, let's talk about Alpine for a little bit here on the flip side, and we'll do that in uh, just a, uh, just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back. So uh, let's uh, let's uh, turn it around here and go in a little bit of a different uh, direction. So Esteban Ocon says that uh, he believes that the Alpine F1 team is uh, in good hands, as he says, with the with the new management that's uh, been uh, brought in, and. Um, I'm still trying to get my, my my mind around it. Just uh, some of the tra- the the changes that uh, that we've seen here uh, recently with uh, Surreal Abitabula uh, leaving, who's been uh, the the team principal there for several years. Former Suzuki MotoGP boss uh, Davide uh, Brivio has uh, come in as a racing director. They got the new uh, Alpine CEO Laurent Rossi, and uh, it, it's 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 interesting uh, just the the the, the changes that uh, that they've made off the track, and some of the I guess the the ambivalence. And and maybe some of the uh, the the uh, kind of blah attitude uh, that I've had towards uh, Renault over the past uh, couple of seasons. I'd have to say that that's my my opinion is uh, changing around. It, it's obviously going to take a little bit uh, of time for these the the, the the new you know the the new owner well not the new owners but the new management regime to come in and establish their own uh, fingerprint and their own personality uh, upon this team. But I feel more positive about where this uh, this team is going right now. Um, I, I think uh, Ocon, I think he's a good driver. I think he still needs uh, a ways to go. I think he's still a bit of a, an unpolished gem in that regards. Still a, a little bit um, on the fence about uh, Fernando Alonso rejoining the team. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, this has the potential to be either good or bad. I, I think it's either going to be one or the other. I don't think it's going to be somewhere in the middle, but I think at least off the track, some of the changes that we've seen over the past month or two, I think that the team uh, is, is certainly going in the right direction. And it will be interesting to see how they, uh, you know, they handle it. Well, with, uh, you know, new management in place, because we, we, we know how sort of an inflammatory uh, personality Fernando Alonso can be if things don't start going the way that he wants or expects, how the new management uh, will, will, will deal with that. 
I, I hope there aren't, for the sake of Alpine, I, I hope the expectations aren't too great for this season. The reality mm-hmm. is I think they brought in some really great people, capital, whether it's Davide Brivio or the new CEO or the new team principal. I think they brought in some really great people. That The challenge is, is that an F1 team is an organization of hundreds of people and thousands of ideas and millions of patents. And oftentimes the car that you're racing was in the development pipeline for years in advance. So that the reality is they're going to be able to apply very little impact to the car that we're going to see in 2021. The reality is that, and you mentioned that fingerprint, like their fingerprint will start to become obvious in 2022 and beyond. So I I think we saw some flashes this year in terms of Renault's podiums, which which were nice. Uh, But again, I, I also speak to the fact that there was an awful lot of podiums available because Ferrari had such a down year. And I don't want to attribute too much of that to Renault, but I think this is going to be that pivot year, that rebuild year. And if you've heard the comments from Alonso, I don't think he's expecting to win races, at least publicly, that's what he's proclaiming. I think 2022 is really going to be the year where we see the real Alpine, a truly leaner, more competitive Alpine. And your comment about Fernando Alonso rings true as well. And, And I know, I know, and we might speak to this, but you'd kind of reference an article with me when we were talking earlier about the fact that Akon doesn't feel he's going to be in in the shadow of Fernando Alonso mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's garbage that and again I don't want to be too dramatic but I think that's nonsense my my feeling is having watched the sport for 20 years 30 years that Fernando Alonso is one of those guys that can suck all of the oxygen out of the room and that's okay if he's winning but I I don't think for a second Akon's going to get any any shine this season unless he's successful and he's winning and he's out racing Alonzo. If he's not as competitive as a 40 plus year old Alonzo, he will get no shine and he will absolutely be in the shadow of Fernando Alonso. And I also think that this team wouldn't have worked so hard to bring Fernando back if they didn't intend to commit every potential resource to him to make him successful. So again, Akon's got a slightly longer lineage with the current leadership at this team. But my sense is that if Fernando comes back and he's even remotely competitive, Akon will be a distant second within that team in terms of priority. Yeah, you know, I, I can't disagree with that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, uh, too, that uh, their reserve driver, Sergei Sorotkin, he feels that uh, Akon should be able to to hold his own against uh, Fernando. But, you know, just, just knowing the personality that uh, that Fernando is, and especially, you know, just, just the history there and just how he's dealt with, uh, you know, situations in the past where it's it's become me and the other guy on the other side of the garage, you know, the, the things haven't always ended too rosy when uh, there, there's been friction between Fernando Alonso and his and his teammate, and certainly when when you have a young guy, uh, you know, like uh, 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 sorry Esteban Ocon, and uh, somebody still on the up and up in Formula One, still trying to establish himself, still trying to find his feet in the sport, despite some of the things that we've seen him do with Renault and previously with the, with, with Racing Point slash Force India, that. Um, I don't think Fernando would take too kindly to, I don't think he'd be really warm up to that uh, if he was shown up by, you know, his, his young up and coming yet, you know, not firmly established in the, the sport uh, teammates. Excuse me. So that one I think is, uh, it's going to be a situation to watch, uh, certainly uh, for, for sure. Uh, let's uh, move away from Alpine now. So let's uh, talk a little bit uh, about uh, Ferrari. So uh, Carlos Sainz um, finally is going to be able to, to get into the car 
for the very, very first time in a private test of Fiorano uh, next uh, next week. He's been working in the in the in the simulator. There's been some uh, pictures out there of um, Carlos in the car. So uh, you know already. And it is an interesting uh, dynamic uh, to see Ferrari uh, doing very un-Ferrari things and looking at such a young lineup of Charles Leclerc and uh, Carlos Sainz. And, uh, you know, it uh, it, it really is, uh, you know, like I've been saying quite a bit, you know, there, there's so many stories that are going to be interesting to watch. And uh, certainly Carlos is one of those guys that, uh, that, that we're going to be looking to see how is he going to match up to his teammate, uh, Charles Leclerc, especially when you have the highly touted Mick Schumacher in the Haas, the Ferrari customer team, kind of ready to slide in there. And I think you were the one that first brought that brought that up, uh, you know, a couple of weeks back. And uh, the, the, this is just, you know, it, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's a fairy tale story waiting to happen if you're Mick Schumacher, you know, because all the history that that name has with Ferrari. But, you know, you, you've got Carlos uh, Sainz, who's going to do everything within his power to to obviously keep his seat at Ferrari and shine there. So I think that it's it's going to be fascinating when we get to, to, to Bahrain. To, to see how that first weekend goes and, and to see how these two match up. Yeah, I mean, testing and all these things and even free practice is uh, going to be a little bit different. But I'm I'm really, really eager to watch this dynamic and play at the Scuderia this year. I was so struck, and I think I probably saw the same photo that you did, and it was Carlos Sainz getting a seat fitting in the Ferrari with the red Ferrari mask on. Yeah. And, and I was really struck. I'm just like, I don't, I don't, I don't even remember when or how this happened, but the announcement was so long ago that you almost forget it. It, Like it was distant history. It was May 12th when they announced that Carlos Sainz was going to join Ferrari. We're talking eight, nine months ago. So we went through an entire F1 season with him as a part of the McLaren team, knowing that he was going to eventually make the transition to Ferrari. And now that he did, it's almost surreal to see him in Ferrari red. Um, I'm excited. And you're right. It's going to be an extremely young driver lineup. I think I think at the beginning of the season, Leclerc is going to be 23. I think he turned 23 in the fall. Uh, Carlos Sainz is going to be 26. So a very young driver, average age, 24 and a half whatever it is. Uh, but it'll be interesting. But I think, and and you kind of alluded to this a couple of moments ago, the pressure is going to be on Carlos from day one. And, and this is a guy who has, he's been a reliable driver and he scored a couple of podiums, but he's not kind of designated as an up and coming talent in the same way that a George Russell might be, or a Charles Leclerc was to me, he's, he's a good fit next to Charles Leclerc in the sense that he's going to enable Charles Leclerc to do what the team expects him to do, which is win. But I also think that just in terms of the marketing potential of bringing Mick Schumacher into this team, that he has a short leash. And that short leash is only as long as Mick learning Formula One, learning the car, the grip, all those kind of things. And I don't know what it's necessarily going to take for Mick to earn that seat. I don't know what he needs to do at Haas. And to be fair, I don't know what how much he can do at Haas because I think he's going to be handicapped in that team in very much the same way that George Russell is with 
with the Williams team. Yeah, for sure. But I I don't know what it is he's going to need to do. But whatever it is, once once Ferrari sees that from him, that transition will happen. So if I'm Carlos, it's it's a really tough situation because you know you're probably never going to win out over Charles Leclerc given his legacy and his successes. And that's not to say that it can't happen and Carlos can go in this season and outperform Charles Leclerc. But I don't necessarily see that happen just because of Charles' familiarity with the engineers and the mechanics and the car and the chassis and the tires and the power unit. Like Carlos has a lot of work to do and he doesn't Mm -hmm. have a lot of time to do it. But yeah, I'm still struck and I wish him nothing but the best. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to suggest he's not a talented driver, but I just think he's in a very, very stressful position and it would be different if he had a two-year deal or three-year deal and it would be different if you didn't have Mick Schumacher suiting up for Ferrari's basically B team in Haas this coming season. Well you know Mark I I think it's uh, you know you made a a couple of really good points there and I I keep thinking about it has there been well I I mean professional sports is always the same it's all okay well you did this for me today that's great but what are you going to do for me tomorrow I mean uh, we we won today but uh, that's today you know I mean I mean the the memories are really really short in pro sports and especially in Formula One but I mean I can't think of another guy in recent history that uh, has been under pressure to keep his drive before he's actually been behind the wheel on it on the track I I think the clock started ticking as soon as uh, that that deal was announced and Mick Schumacher was going to be uh, driving for Haas in 2021. Just, uh, you know, that that trajectory that uh, he's been on ever since, you know, with Formula 2 being part of the Ferrari Driver Academy and sort of be, you know, th- these links, the, the, they've sort of been building slowly over time with the, the the ultimate goal to get him where, you know, that they, you know, you would think that uh, logically would, uh, you know, be the, the ideal landing place for him. So I think Carlos is, uh, you know, under pressure and he's in a bit of a weird spot too when it comes to like uh, age wise i mean he like you say he's 26 so he's a little bit older than your your leclerc's your strolls your your russells and and guys like that but he's not quite as old as like your vettels your perez's he kind of sits somewhere in the middle so he's not really so much i mean he's a young driver in a sense and maybe i'm just maybe a little bit have a bit of a false impression just uh maybe that's just you know i've just let uh let it slip by uh you know over, over the years but i i think that uh yeah it, it, it's just a, a funny spot so i i think that uh you know very much uh, i think we talked about it before that i think he's he's coming in there that uh, i think he knows his position i i think very much like bottas at uh, mercedes he's not gonna be the kind of guy that's gonna start uh you know having a fernando type uh, meltdown or start uh, voicing, you know, like uh, displeasure if things aren't going his way. I mean, he he comes across as a, as a very relaxed kind of very, you know, I don't want to say, uh, well, I guess, uh, well, I guess relaxed kind of chill kind of guy, but um, you know, very much like Valtteri Bottas is, and, and I, I think that. Uh, you know, I, I think he's there to do what he needs to do for for Ferrari, but that's why I think it's going to be interesting to see what is the difference going to be between him and and, and Charles Leclerc. I think there's going to be a, a, I don't want to say a substantial difference, but I think Charles is definitely going to have the edge. Completely, completely, totally agree. That said, and you know, I don't mean to criticize Carlos's decision to go to Ferrari. I mean, ultimately. 
even if you know you're on a short leash, even if you know it's a short-term deal, to have the opportunity to drive with a historic team like this, this is something that you never turn down. I mean, you, the perception might be that you have a short leash, but there's nothing to say you don't go to this team and you outperform your teammate and you build you build a business case for you to stay there. I don't think it's going to happen. To your point, I think Carl, I think Charles Leclerc is going to significantly outperform him based on everything we've seen so far. And again, I'm still, I'm still skeptical of Sainz's ceiling just because he is 25, he's 26, he's bounced amongst a couple of teams. And I've always wondered why it took Ferrari and now from to get a top drive, especially considering the fact that going into this past season, going into the 2020 season, Going into that contract negotiation with Ferrari, he'd scored one podium in his career. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of remarkable that Ferrari would even consider that. So I think there's some strategy here beyond their expectation that he's going to win races. I think they probably believe he's just a complimentary driver to Charles Leclerc, but I wish him well. I just, I don't think he's going to be able to perform at the same level as Charles. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just want to take uh, one final break here on the show, uh, Mark. And then when we come back, I, I want to talk about uh, Carlos's uh, predecessor, and that's uh, Sebastian Vettel. Um, you know, as time goes on, you know, little bits and pieces start to uh, to, to to leak out into the media about uh, Seb's sudden and unexpected uh, termination from Ferrari last year. And we'll talk about that on the flip side in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be back right after this short break. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And once again, welcome to you all listening on the podcast. And those of you watching on uh, YouTube, uh, you can find us everywhere. You listen to your podcast. We're on all good platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you can think of podcasts, we're there. And we also have the YouTube channel up and running, which we've been doing. So if YouTube's your jam, go and check us out there as well. Anyways, as I mentioned uh, before the the, the break, uh, there's been some interesting little bits kind of, uh, you know, Coming to light now uh, about uh, Sebastian Vettel getting chopped uh, from Ferrari just about a a year ago. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, this whole year has been kind of bizarre and surreal and obviously a difficult time to to live through. But the the announcement when it came that Sebastian uh, Vettel was not coming back to Ferrari kind of came at the beginning of the whole COVID situation as it was going around the Western Hemisphere and stuff like that. We were all trying to kind of come to terms with that. And this was one of those really unexpected things at the time because all the news that we'd been hearing, all the rumblings was, yes, Ferrari wanted back, that they're talking about it, that uh, that a new deal seems to be imminent and uh, something will be announced, uh, you know, in, in the new future. Turned out, obviously, that, uh, of course, it was uh, far from that. But apparently when the news came down and uh, Mattia Bonato team principal broke the news to Seb that he wasn't going to come back uh, from the, to Ferrari, that they didn't want him uh, there for, for 2021, apparently he he didn't really try to, in his own words, uh, convince them to, uh, to change their mind. He seemed uh, to to be pretty, uh, I would say, a comfort uh, with anything. Anyways, he told a racer, quote, I don't need to understand Ferrari's decision, to be honest, and it doesn't change anything. I don't look at it. It doesn't, I don't work that way. Uh, it's uh, fine for me, and I completely accept it. And when Mattia told me on the phone, it was clear. Uh, it wasn't like I was trying to fight back or convince him. Otherwise, not at all. I think that uh, very much if one door shuts, another one will open. And obviously, it took a bit of time, and it raised a lot of questions about which door I want to open. It's not that I had all the teams of choice, just 
just uh, in terms of what I want to do more for the future if I want to stay in Formula One or, or not. But obviously, I've made my decision and opened the door, end quote. So interesting. Uh, but I mean, I, I guess when the, the, the writing's on the wall, well, I mean, it wasn't on the wall. I mean, it was right out there in his face that Ferrari didn't want him back. I mean, what else uh, can you can you can you say? I mean, uh, Sebastian Vettel doesn't exactly strike me as the kind of guy that he's going to get down on his knees and beg uh, Matteo Bonato to you know keep him. I'll come back for reduced salary. They'd obviously made other plans, and that was it. And Seb was obviously seemed okay with it. Yeah, and nor should a four times world champion have to beg for a seat on a team. Yeah, I, I think what we saw last winter, last spring was really a byproduct of a couple of things. Obviously, he made the transition over from Red Bull in 15, 15 and 16, very much development years. 17, 18, he finished second to the driver's title, but really it was his own mistakes in a lot of ways, especially, and you alluded to this earlier when you were speaking to the Singapore situation in 2018, it was a lot of individual personal mistakes that cost him a better shot at winning those titles, especially in 2018. Mm -hmm. And then 2019, the dynamic changed because Raikkonen, who'd been a really loyal, I shouldn't say backup driver, but he'd been a very loyal beta to the alpha that was Vettel on that yeah. team. He was gone and you introduced this fiery upstart, uber talented Charles Leclerc. And right from the beginning of the season in 2019, there was friction. There was friction off the track. There was friction on the track. There was constant discussion and noise around team orders and driver orders and Vettel disobeying and Charles Leclerc disobeying. Like it didn't feel like that relationship was sustainable. Mm -hmm. And it was clear for a couple of reasons. One, because he was younger, but two, because he actually outperformed Vettel. It was clear that Charles Leclerc was immediately the team's future. And did you necessarily want to sign up for another two or three years of that situation as you have an aging Vettel who has certain expectations of what his role in with his team? Well, you have this emergent the blossoming superstar in Charles Leclerc. I think the one thing that was very surprising was how long it took for that news to break. Like that's something that you would typically have heard earlier in the off season. And even before it became official, it was widely reported. And the other challenge that kind of made the dynamic a little bit more awkward during the season was the fact that we knew in May, and we talked about this a couple of minutes ago, we knew on May 12th that Carlos was going to replace Vettel, but it was many months later that we finally found Vettel a home. So it was kind of this awkward dynamic where Ferrari had replaced Vettel, Vettel was still racing for them, it wasn't clear where he was going to be, mm -hmm. but ultimately, you know what, I, think he's, I still think he's a, a class act by any measure, but I, I don't think it would have been appropriate for him to beg that to beg for that seat, but I also think he realized during 2019 that the, the writing was on the wall that that Charles Leclerc was going to be the future driver and that he wasn't going to get the treatment as an alpha driver that maybe he'd conditioned to before and that he'd had his opportunities right he had 2017 he had 2018 he couldn't close in either of those seasons that opportunity wasn't going to exist for him again yeah exactly and the thing I mean you you, you really uh, nailed it uh, quite uh, quite accurately was that uh, that Charles came in and just uh, he was immediately the uh, it was like right off the bat proved that the, the he was going to be the guy that uh, you know that, that they were going to want to build this team around but the thing is too is that uh, that that Raikkonen and God knows I love Kimi Raikkonen as a as a Formula One driver but the thing was I mean for Sebastian Vettel he was the 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 ideal teammate because he was just never going to be able to push. 
uh, Seb, a- any any further? I mean, Vettel was just always that little bit uh, quicker than the, than Kimi Raikkonen, and then you get uh, Charles come in, and he's completely flipped the script uh, upside down, and, and and now not only is uh, Vettel, uh, you know, not uh, just uh, trying to keep up with his teammate, but I mean, he's <laughs> really having to try and match him in in, 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 a, in a big way. So I, I think obviously by the time that he got the the, the phone call from Mattia, he was probably you know internally had had known for some time okay well you know it it doesn't make sense for me to stay here anymore and then the big question is okay well where do I go from here is is another opportunity going to come up in Formula One this year am I going to have to sit a a year out I mean there was even some speculation before that uh, Aston Martin deal was announced that uh, perhaps his time in Formula One was coming to an end and then you know it's just like that old saying where there's smoke there's fire and uh, you know it's that uh, that that I mean that Aston Martin link never really disappeared it didn't really build up a huge head of steam and and there was a lot of hype around it it really kind of hung around there for for a while and then i think once perez kind of started weighing in on it and uh you know i i think that to, to me kind of kind of legitimized it to a certain extent that yeah you know if, if checo was starting to say more things about it and starting to kind of pump his own tires about what he's done to the team over the years i i think there's something here of substance uh about uh, sebastian vettel going there but you know just uh, sticking with uh, vettel he says that uh, he actually feels richer for having raced at uh, ferrari and I, I don't think that's uh no necessarily uh, a reference to his pocketbook although i'm sure he got paid uh, handsomely for the uh the, the several years that uh, he raced uh for 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 Ferrari, but I mean, just to to race of a team of that uh, that caliber. I think if you're a racing driver, I think that's got to be one of those two teams that uh, that that you want to check that box off on your bucket list to say, yeah, I I drove for Ferrari in Formula One, I won races for them or World Championship or or, or Mercedes. I think those are the two premier formula one teams two iconic marks and um you know not only is he richer for having uh, been there i think he's going to bring a wealth of knowledge with him and i think that was you know as we talked about uh, the other week that that's one of the big attractions of bringing him into to, to aston martin i mean there's there, there's a lot of upsides uh, to, to do that so i mean um i i would love to one of these days when we're able to travel again i mean you see these pictures of like the the ferrari museum at marinello i, I would just love to go in there and and just soak that vibe up and probably you know max out my uh my my, my credit card in the gift shop afterwards but <laughs> that that certainly uh i mean the 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 history of uh ferrari i mean it uh i mean it's it's just synonymous with racing it's uh synonymous with formula one i think what's going to be very interesting to watch in the coming years and decades is how we interpret Vettel's legacy as a driver, right? Like this is a this is a guy that won a race with Toro Rosso in 2008, ran off four straight titles with Red Bull in dominant fashion. I mean, 2012 was close with with Alonso, but he ran off four straight titles in dominant fashion. And then he transitioned to the team that he saw his childhood idol, Michael Schumacher, dominate on. And he had five years with that team. He had two legitimate shots in 17 and 18, but he leaves never having won a title with that team, not a driver's title, not a constructor's title. And I, I really am curious as to how that plays into his legacy. 
I guess the reality is he he has the opportunity to once again rewrite history and reboot his legacy with Aston mm-hmm. Martin. So there's a lot of story left to be told, but it would have been a real shame if his career had ended after five years at Ferrari without a title. So yeah, yeah, that that's really the only thoughts I have on that one. Yeah, it it, it certainly. I think there's a little bit more to. Uh, you know, to the story, I, I hope for Sebastian's sake that uh, that he's able to reboot himself and reinvent himself at Aston Martin and not see what we've seen, say latter half of uh, of twenty eighteen and the, the and the twenty twenty or sorry twenty nineteen season. Twenty twenty was a bit of a yeah yeah a bit of a weird year just uh, you know due to the fact how uncompetitive that car was. But I certainly, for his sake, that uh, that that he's got uh, more to say when he gets to well, he's already had Aston Martin, but uh, looking forward to seeing what he can do there. So finally, Mark, as uh, we we wrap it up uh, for the this week, uh, just uh, one final story, and we could probably go on for another forty five minutes here or, or more. But uh, uh, Sauber is uh, set to extend uh, their current deal with uh, with the Ferrari uh, for another uh, you know couple of years until twenty twenty five. You know, there was some rumor out there that there might be some sort of switch. Uh, to uh, Renault, some link up uh, with there, but I guess uh, th- this makes uh, sense. And uh, you know what? With uh, obviously the um, you know the uh, you know the, uh, the the branding as Alfa Romeo. I mean, underneath it's very much a Sauber. On the outside, it's very much an Alfa Romeo. I mean, that's uh, the, the whole Alfa Romeo thing. Is I think it's a it's a very fancy sponsorship uh, deal, but still, I think it's interesting too. And I think uh, for Ferrari, it makes sense. What with the you know the the whole new financial structure coming into Formula One, I think it makes sense to have these agreements with teams like Haas, have agreements with teams like Sauber slash Alfa Romeo, because. They're obviously going to have to downsize. And I think that if you can try and, uh, you know, if you have these uh, sister teams, it gives you these uh, the, these opportunities to to keep people within the, you know, the system under that uh, that Ferrari umbrella. I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen. But, uh, you know, just from a support side, I mean, from a Ferrari point, I think there's an upside there to kind of keep your people there if it's possible. If you're, um, you're Haas or Sauber or uh, Alfa Romeo, I think there's obviously the, the, the big upside that you get all that support and all that knowledge and uh you know well i don't know if uh, necessarily having a ferrari power unit at the moment is a good thing <laughs> but uh, certainly you know we have to think at some point that's uh, going to get uh, sorted out uh but uh, interesting nonetheless yeah the only thing i'll add to this is i i don't know if we'll ever see the terms of this agreement but i have to believe they're probably very favorable to sauber I mean, when you're in a position like you are with Ferrari right now and you're not providing your partner teams with a really competitive power unit, yeah. I, I suspect that the deal is pretty favorable. And I think you make a great point about the fact that with this pending cap crunch, teams like Ferrari and Mercedes are going to have to shed people capital like crazy to get mm-hmm. under that cap. And I think it only makes sense that if I'm Ferrari and I can distribute some of that people capital to my partner teams in Haas and Alfa Romeo slash Sauber, all the better because ultimately I want my partner teams to be successful and I need to nurture their success because I want them to continue to buy continue to buy power units from me now and in the future. So I'm curious as to what the deal is. It makes total sense. Um, I, I think it probably helps to cement at least the medium term uh, future of Sauber slash and I've started to slash now because I'm not confident that we'll see an Alfa Romeo team. I know I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> but uh, Sauber slash Alfa Romeo, it's great that we're going to see them on the grid for the next four or five years and it yeah. just speaks to the economic stability of the sport because it's not great for the sport to be in a position where a headline is always the financial challenges of one of the 
few teams that are even on the grid. So good news story all around. Yeah. yeah I just want to add one thought to that too. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the, you know, the, the new financial structure that, uh, you know, teams have to operate in Formula One, I think it's absolutely the right thing uh, to do, especially, well, you know, COVID and, and economic crunch uh, notwithstanding, I think that, uh, you know, the spending has been out of control for far too long. I think fiscally it's a responsible thing to do. But there's, there, there's a flip side uh, to that. I mean, we're going to see this decreasing uh, cost cap over the next couple of years before it, it levels out. But I mean, the, the flip side like that, uh, that, that, that you said, is there going to be this loss in people capital? And I mean, not only is that detrimental to the teams th- the, themselves, but I think that it is a detriment to, to, to Formula One, that you're going to have these very, very smart people, very, very qualified people getting away from the sport. And I think that if you can keep, you know, the, 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 the cream of the cream, you know, the best of the best in the sport and maybe redistribute uh, these, these, these people or give them options to go to other teams, I think that's a, a, a good thing for, for Formula One. So, you know, like I say, I mean, financial uh you know restraint is one good thing but unfortunately there is a cost to that and unfortunately when it comes to uh cost of restraints and things like that it's usually in terms of people so hopefully they can uh, sort that out anyways mark that's all i got for this week man i'm i'm pretty much uh you know i i'm done <laughs> i'm all set Hold on. Let me get my MotoGP corner notes. Hey, on. there I'm you joking. go. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I have to I have to go through the proper channels and get official sign off before I float 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 this onto the air. But yeah, that was uh I think we covered a lot of stuff in the hour fifteen that we've been recording. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just gonna say though, with the the the, the uh, sort of I guess the impromptu and spontaneous introduction of uh, MotoGP Corner a couple of weeks ago, and then the egregious omission of uh, MotoGP Corner last week. You know, I, I know you've been chomping at the bit to to, to get it back in there, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly do so. And uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you know what I, I find. You know, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here before we sign off that I've got so many different interests in sports that, uh, you know, having things like a family and, and and work and formula and all the other things I follow that I just don't have enough time in my life to to devote to all these uh, the, the, these interests. You know, I, I literally have to stay awake 20 hours a day and, and, and be financially independent that, you know, I don't have to go out and earn a living <laughs> to try and keep up with all the things I'm interested in. I, I know many of the people that, uh, I know a lot of you guys are sitting there right now nodding in agreement, but hey, I guess if you're always left uh, wanting more in life that's uh, that that's a good thing so anyways that's it uh, from us uh, thank you again uh, for downloading listening to the show and watching us on youtube if you want to get in touch by all means do so give us an email at uh, scooteriaf one pod at gmail.com or tweet us at uh, scooteriaf one pod and that's it that's a wrap have a great rest of the week enjoy your weekend and we'll be back next week bye for now ciao